Hello and welcome to the Hippocampus podcast, a place where we discuss the strategies that help optimise learning. So join us for some grassroots conversations where we share some practical tips and insights that might just make your learning journey a little easier. As we embark upon our journey through medical school or university, we often find ourselves re-evaluating our studying approaches and life priorities. The internet and YouTube provide a valuable source of inspiration and guidance. And one of the most popular and inspiring names on YouTube for many students is Dr. Ali Abdal. So we knew we had to ask him to join us for an episode. So no matter what stage of studies you're at, there will be something really valuable to take away from this episode, as Ali shares his personal journey with insights and reflections on how his learning strategies have developed and how his priorities have evolved over time. So let's join the hosts, medical students me, Nikita, Elliot, Gaia, Kish and Sophie, and Lisa, who is a lecturer in medical education. Welcome back and hello everyone. How are we doing? How are we doing? Very good, thanks. Good, good, good to hear. We're very excited to have a special guest join us on this episode, Dr. Ali Abdal. Uh, Many of you will know Ali from his hugely popular YouTube channel and social media presence. His channel, which has over 900,000 subscribers, has a whole range of videos with many having over a million views. A number of of videos focus on optimizing study time and effective learning strategies, an area of particular interest to us, our listeners, and indeed anyone who is keen to learn. In addition to being a very successful YouTuber, Ali is also a blogger, a podcaster, businessman, content creator, and a qualified doctor. Ali, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us. How are you doing? Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm doing great. This is like my fourth day of uh, unemployment officially. So, um, <laughs> excited to <laughs> dive into stuff. Um, so we're really keen uh, to get to know a bit more about your journey through medicine and how your learning techniques have been shaped over time. So we've had a few questions come in from our listeners on Instagram as well. So we'll try to feed that into the discussion as much as possible. Thanks, Nikita. So we'd like to start today's episode by rewinding the clock and taking you back a few years to when you were just starting medical school. In our first episode of the series, we talked about the challenges that students can experience when they come into medical school or higher education from college and there being a period of sort of settling into the course over the first year. So we'd like to ask you, so when you think back, how did you find that transition and the early period of medical school? Yeah, so that was an interesting time, right? Because when you get into med school, as you guys will all know, um, everyone sells you this vision that med school is like the hardest thing anyone can do like ever. Um, And I had very much bought into that kind of mentality. And so in my first year, uh, especially at the start, I sort of had in my head that, okay, this is supposed to be hard. And what hard looks like is I have these huge textbooks. I have to go through the reading list. I have to kind of take notes on all the lectures. I have to have highlighting on everything. And it was just a very, uh, like a not very evidenced way of approaching medical school. And I think, and now like one of the things that I try and do is I try and really fight against this mythification of how hard medical school is supposed to be. Because we all had this when we were doing our GCSEs, you know, people in the year above would be, oh my God, you know, from year nine to GCSE, that's a big step up. And then you do GCSEs and it's all right. And then suddenly for A-levels, like that's a huge step up, but you do it and it's all right. And equally for medical school, I think that myth was even more disproportionately exaggerated. Mm -hmm. And so I really bought into this. And so, you know, when I'd be going through lectures, just implicitly in my mind, I had a view that, okay, you know, in, in order to be a good medical student, I need to have Grey's Anatomy open over there. I need to have 
clinically oriented anatomy over there. I need to have a laptop over here. I need to have my book over here. I need to write it. It's just like a, I don't know, a very Instagrammy way of looking at studying for exams. Um, and so I struggled through first year, um, partly because, you know, when you're at university, there are more interesting things to do than studying. And so I would fall behind in term time and catch up during the holidays. But it was only kind of towards the end of the year that I realized, actually, hang on, a lot of this is very doable. This is mostly a case of memorizing a certain bunch of facts. The exam papers are usually based on you know, understanding a core set of principles, which isn't actually too tricky, and then memorizing just a load of stuff. And that shifted my strategy from, oh, okay, so med school is, is, is actually not that hard. It's just mostly about understanding the basics and then memorizing a load of stuff. And then once I changed my strategy, you kind of using flashcards and stuff, uh, and a lot more active recall, which is another evidence-based strategy, then things started to get a lot easier. And I really wish I'd discovered that sooner because it would have made, made first year a lot less um, anxiety-inducing than it was. Because you, you talk about the sort of mythification of med school, and I think there is this almost narrative when, when you come into medical school, this is you know, how it should be, how we should study, and then how you talked about just sort of breaking away from those myths and finding those strategies which are much more helpful. In our, one, one of our first episodes, we call these light bulb moments where students in the early phase of medical school come up with these moments. So what exactly was that light bulb moment for you, if you could just expand on that a little bit more, perhaps? Yeah, so I think, I think for me in first year, the, like the light bulb moments came sort of halfway through the year when mm -hmm. I was talking to people in the year above. And this is something that I always advocate for people, you know, just like make friends with the people in the year above because they know what the score is, they know what's going on. And someone recommended this app called Anki for learning anatomy. And I'd never, just, I'd never heard of this app before. And suddenly I discovered it and I was like, oh my God, you can make flashcards. And I'd sort of vaguely looked up the whole space repetition thing and I found, oh my God, you know, if I need to memorize just a torrent of information, I can just do it by, by testing myself on the thing. And so I used flashcards for a little bit. And then eventually I just turned to making like a table for myself where I had like questions in one column and then the answer in the other column. And I'd print it out and cover up the answer column. So kind of, you know, like the very basics of that whole look, cover, write, check method. And that just worked so well. And it made me sort of every you know, we had like 30 sessions in our anatomy thingy. And so every day before bed, I would go through three of them just answering these questions. And in about a month, like almost by default, I'd memorized most of anatomy just by going through these questions and testing myself on them. Oh. Uh, and so that was a bit of a light bulb moment, but it was only really in my second year when we actually had a lecture about evidence-based study, uh, study mm -hmm. techniques that I realized there was like, this was actually a thing. And, you know, you know, came across the phrase active recall for the first time and the idea of spaced repetition and the idea of interleaving and categorizing and these things that apparently people have been studying for decades, but the sort of stuff that no one just thinks of telling you when you get into med school or even in secondary school, like <laughs> at least I never got taught how to study for stuff. And so I was just kind of doing the thing that everyone else was doing. Um, and I remember when we had that lecture in second year, it was like a psychology module. Everyone left that lecture thinking, oh my God, this is mind blowing. Why has no one told us this before? And so after that, that was when I really started to get into the actual research behind it and be like, oh, you know, stuff is awesome. Absolutely. These sort of platforms yourself on your YouTube channel, you know, that's really why we started the podcast, because we wanted to bring these study techniques, which are evidence informed to students so that they don't have to have this sort of transition and, and lose valuable time before they can start implementing effective techniques that work for them. So in terms of your like top or go to technique um would you be able to narrow it down to which is the number one best technique you have and why oh easy active recall or just testing yourself uh there is a very good book that every single student in the world should read called make it stick uh the yeah. subtitle is like the science of successful learning or something like that and yeah it's just 
as the there's a line in that book which says that if you're not happy with your results chances are you're just not testing yourself enough um and i find that anytime i chat to people they're like yeah you know i'm, I'm studying really hard and I'm, I'm not getting the grades that i want the answer is you're just not <laughs> testing yourself enough and just i at least for the n equals one kind of study of myself that i've done over time i just find that the more i test myself the more i just remember um and so that is by far and away the, the single biggest recommendation i think personally i personally think that taking notes is generally a waste of time um writing questions for yourself however is not at all a waste of time and when you write questions for yourself and maybe kind of put in the notes in there if you feel like you have to write notes then as you revise the stuff you're not just rereading stuff that you've written you are retesting yourself and so retesting is so much it's like infinitely better than rereading and that would be my number one recommendation I, I completely agree, actually, Ali. I've gone through a similar journey where I used to write piles and piles of notes, and then I actually never looked back at them in the years ahead. So, yeah, completely agree with that. Um, so you've spoken about some of your strategies, um, you know, active recall. And actually, personally, I picked up the active recall, the space repetition spreadsheet from your videos and stuff, and it's been working for me for a year. So I'd like to say thank you for that, first oh, of all. I'm glad. Um, yeah, so it's been great. Um, but so we can appreciate and see, like, you know the benefits of all these strategies but um you know you mentioned how you sort of got into this routine of answering questions say each night and stuff like that but it can be really hard to put them into practice at first and i've spoken to a couple of friends as well who always talk about how they've struggled to implement some strategies like as a habit or routine so can you tell us a bit about that process you went through of, of embedding those strategies into a sort of habit or routine yeah um i think sort of my my routines on this have changed over time. Uh, like as I was first discovering this stuff, I hadn't, I still hadn't quite realized its power. And so I would do that thing of like, you know, just for anatomy or just for pharmacology, for example, I'd make flashcards or question and, and, and answer things. And I kind of assumed that, oh, I guess testing yourself makes sense if you're testing yourself on individual factoids, like, you know, what's the mecha mechanism of action of this one particular drug? But now over time, what I've realized is testing yourself on absolutely everything is just the way forward. And so right now I'm kind of dabbling with USMLE preparation and having to revisit some of my first and second year of like physiology content, e even like testing myself on that stuff. Like, you know, what does ghrelin do? <laughs> or like, what does somatostatin do? Or things like that, that are not individual factoids because ghrelin and somatostatin do like eight different things. And you kind of have to understand the process and how it works. Now it's just like, that is the only way that I revise. I would, I, if like, I would, I would just kind of test myself on, on the thing. And so I guess part of your question was, how do you, how do you turn this into a habit? And I think the number one thing I would say is just like, when you're sitting down to study, don't reread and don't make notes, just test yourself. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And yeah, like you can go a bit too extreme with this, but I think most of us are very much erring on the side of not testing ourselves enough. And so if we just replace what we're currently doing with doing more testing of ourselves, at that point, we've got the biggest gain. And then we can start doing like smaller tweaks, like, you know, every morning for an hour, I'm going to do some flashcards. Um, one thing that I particularly enjoyed is that when, when I really got into flashcards, I found that it was quite a social way to study as well. And so me and two of my housemates, Callum and Paul, what we would do is a few times a week, we would order a, a chicken donor kebab, for, a chicken donor kebab from City Kebab, which was one of the few <laughs> shops in Cambridge that was open until three in the morning. And we'd sit in my room and we'd, we'd just go through flashcards uh, for pharmacology together. And because we, we were doing that for pretty much the whole year, it meant that by the time the exams rolled around, we'd already learned all of pharmacology just by casually doing it while eating a kebab a few times a week. Okay. So I think if you can build those sorts of routines into your life, A, it just makes life more fun. B, it's good memories because 
you know, I'll always cherish those times and see you get to learn stuff along the way. So it's a win, winning all around. Did you sort of go through a transition where you were more of the independent learner and then you decided to, you know, collaborate more with people and... It was kind of throughout. And I think this was one of the benefits of, um, so like I was very involved in like the Pakistan society and the Islamic society. And often there's a lot of medics in these societies. And there is, at least at Cambridge and I'm sure at other universities, there's very much a culture of sharing resources amongst year groups. Um, you know, at Cambridge, we had a, a nice thing with the college system as well, whereby just by default, you know that you've got your college medics in the year above and two years above that will, will just give you all their notes and all the essays and all their tips and stuff like that. And so I think going into going into university with that culture of sharing, it meant that from day one, I knew that collaboration was the way forward. And so um, like what I did with my year group in, in college is that I sort of set up a Google Drive because at the time we didn't really have a shared Google Drive. And I was the first one to stop putting my essays into that. And then as I was doing it, more people started doing it. And we turned this Google Drive into like a nice collaborative resource. Um, and then some of us would like get together in the library and just kind of study together. And most of the time, what it would look like is it wouldn't be us actually like doing the same thing together. It would be just us sitting in the same room and just doing our own thing. But just having, having friends around makes studying so much more fun. And because, you know, a big part of university is to have fun. I think the slight productivity hit that probably comes from hanging out with your friends is absolutely worth, um, it's, it's, it's worth the sacrifice because it just makes studying a far more pleasant process overall. I just wanted to um, just draw on the other point you made uh, a few minutes ago about um, being able to implement sort of habits and how to get them into a routine. You kind of said, which I really liked, like kebabs and pharmacology flashcards, because what you've done is you've, like, you've taken a fun thing, a social thing that, you know, it's going to happen at university. People are going to study and enjoy themselves. And then you brought in, you know, a very effective study technique and enable that to become a habit. So I guess my question is, a lot of students, there's this status quo traditional method of learning, you know, you're in a room, it's not fun, um, and it's supposed to be easy, like you said. So what advice would you give to students coming into medical school who are kind of uneasy about perhaps taking these approaches, which are clearly beneficial? Yeah, so I mean, Obviously, there's the caveat that people can do what they want, right, obviously. And so if someone feels like locking themselves in their room and studying because that's what they think is important in life, then fair enough. Uh, what I would say, though, is that like a bit like what I've noticed over the years, and especially kind of when you're actually working as a doctor, a big part of the en enjoyment and satisfaction from life comes from the story that you tell yourself about the thing that you're doing. There's a there's like two ways of thinking about it. So like if, if I'm at work and someone asks me to put in a cannula because the nurses couldn't do it, you know, like intra intravenous access. Um, either I could think, oh, I have to put in this cannula. This is annoying. Or I can think, oh, I get to put in this cannula and this is fun. And just that change from have to to get to just makes all the difference and makes my day infinitely better. I'm like, oh, you know, I have the privilege as a doctor of being able to stab this lady with a cannula and put it in and hopefully get it in first time. It just just that change just like changes the game completely and equally with studying a lot of us have this view like oh you know i have to get through med school med school is such a drag if only i can get through these six years then i'll be an f1 and then i'll be happy and you realize obviously when you get there that actually med school is way more fun than being an actual doctor because when you're a doctor going into hospital is is not optional um but just changing up the mindset and so i think of studying as being fun and maybe I'm just talking myself into believing that it's fun, but that's, but that's the thing that matters, right? Like I look yeah. back on my university experience and I feel happy that like I, I had a really good time studying. Whereas some friends that I know, 
because they thought of it in a different way, they thought of it like, oh, this is such a drag, I have to get through this. They didn't enjoy themselves. And like, either way, you've got to get through the exams. So you're just like actively screwing yourself if you're choosing not to enjoy it. And so <laughs> that's kind of my view on these things. Like if you want, you can lock yourself in your room and be miserable and study and maybe get an extra 2% in the exam for whatever that's worth. Or you can be a bit more social about it, recognize that studying isn't everything. It's important to pass the exams, but beyond that, no one really cares what your grades are. And therefore you might as well think more holistically about the experience rather than thinking of it as optimizing for that. I've got to get that 83% because then I could get one extra point on my FPAS application. And then I could possibly get a slightly higher chance of getting into competitive London, like whatever the, the, the thought process is. I think the question most medical students would like to ask you, Ali, would be about time management and uh, how you get the most out of your days. So for me, I feel like um, I can make time for other interests, but there's always a feeling of guilt, say if it's coming up to exams or if I feel like I've got a lot to do. So I'd like to ask, how do you schedule your hobbies and extracurricular activities into a study routine without feeling guilty and just getting the most out of your time? Yeah, so I think a big part of that is figuring out what you actually want and what, like, the way that I like to phrase it in my head is, you know, what's the game that I'm playing and what are the victory conditions of the game that I'm playing? Um, like I'm super into board games and sort of me and my nerd med school friends, we used to sort of play these like fancy ass board games that would take like four hours to get through. Um, and with these sort of like proper board games, there are always multiple victory conditions. Like either you can have the most number of victory points or you can have the most number of sheep or you can have the biggest family or you can have the biggest army or, you know, depending on the board game, there's, there's different ways of winning. And so at the start, your strategy might be, um, okay, you know, I've got a good hand right now. I'm going to optimize for collecting lots of sheep so I can, you know, get lots of wool and then I can, you know, build my mill or something like that. Or it might be, oh, I've got these army units in my hand. Therefore, I might go for the biggest army victory condition and try and win the game that way. But in these board games, like as you're progressing through the game and as your opponent's making moves and stuff, you realize that maybe the situation has changed somewhat. And when you reconsider the victory conditions, you might realize that actually, you know, I thought I was going for the biggest army, but actually now based on based on my, my circumstances in this board game, I'm actually going for the sheep st strategy. And so I should change things up a bit. And I think this is something that sort of I always, always ask myself, like, what's the game that I'm playing and what are the victory conditions? So like in school, it's very easy for us to play the game of exam results because the victory condition there is I want to get into a good university. And so almost everything sort of falls by the wayside in, in pursuit of getting, you know, as many A stars as you possibly can and, you know, doing the whole extracurricular thing because you want to get into med school and allegedly you have to be well-rounded for that. But then when you get to university, I think it's very easy to continue following that path of, I guess I should do well in exams. You know, like, why? Well, I don't know, because I guess, you know, getting a, getting a distinction would be nice. Okay, fair enough. You know, what about if you didn't get a distinction? Well, I guess, I don't know, just like exam results, because I want to get into competitive specialty. But like, do you realize how little competitive specialty matches your, your exam results? Yeah, no, I don't. Like, um, and so for me, what I recognized in, in my clinical years is that, okay, what, what game am I playing? The game I'm playing is not the optimizing for exam results game. If you are playing that game and you want to rank first in the year group for whatever reason, then inevitably you're not going to have time to do other things because you have to compete against other people in your year group. What I kind of realized is that I want to comfortably pass and I want to be a good doctor, but I actually don't care about memorizing the minutiae that's going to get me really, really high marks in the exams. And I, I'm not interested in this competition other than just, you know, because friendly competition is kind of fun anyway. And so I recognize that there's significant diminishing returns to how much effort you're putting in relative to your exam results. And if you want to get into this, that top 5% category, you're having to put a disproportionate amount of time in to try and get an extra 1% in your exam. 
like it's really hard going from 90% to 91%, but it's really easy going from 50% to 60%. Like that's how the diminishing returns curve goes. And so if you are interested in other things, like, you know, what I start a business and then later a YouTube channel, I saw that those things were probably going to be more interesting for my life as a whole than trying to compete against other people to try and squeeze out an extra 1% in the exam that no one was going to care about anyway. And so I think it's about, it's, it's not really about time management. It's more about recognizing what are your priorities in life and therefore what are the things you need to be spending your time on to get there. Like I had friends of mine who were super into rugby and wanted to play for like the England rugby team. Obviously they're going to spend more of their time playing rugby and less of their time caring about exams. So Ali, you mentioned that you struggled a bit in first year with kind of like falling behind. Um, and you mentioned a lot about um, active recall. Hmm. Um, but I know another method you quite like is um, space repetition. Um, how did you manage to implement that alongside the active recall whilst ensuring you didn't fall behind? Like, do you have any tips for students that might be struggling in their first year? Yeah, so uh, active recall, you know, as we know, just means testing yourself. And spaced repetition means kind of repeating the testing of yourself, but just at spaced intervals. So because of the way the forgetting curve works, it's like you learn something and then it sort of exponentially decays like a sort of half-life curve. Um, and so you want to revise it a day later and then maybe three days later and then maybe a week later and then maybe a month later. And you find that if you space the repetition of the testing, then that is what makes something go into long-term memory. Um, and so like the technique that I use for that uh, for several years, I call it the retrospective revision timetable. And essentially what that involves is like, there's like the standard revision timetable, which is prospective, like looking forward where you would be like, okay, I've got 12 weeks until my exams. I've got 10 subjects on Monday. I'm going to do this on Tuesday. I'm going to do that. And on Wednesday I'm going to do this. And you spend like five hours creating this idealized plan for yourself. And at least for me, I found, find that I spent like a few days creating this pretty revision timetable. And then I'd never follow it because something would come up, the order would get screwed up and it, it, I just wouldn't stick to this, this method. And so what I now do is a retrospective revision timetable which is that instead of having a list of days, days down one side, I essentially have a list of topics. And every time I revise a topic, I write the date in one of the columns and I color code how well I knew that topic. And so on a given day, I will look through my topics list and see, oh, okay, uh, cardiology. I last did that on, in, in, on like the 13th of May and it was red. So clearly I didn't know it very well. Let me do that one. Um, and then once I've done that topic, I'll be like, okay, renal medicine. I did that like last week, but I wasn't very good at it. So let me repeat that. And so I've got a YouTube video kind of explaining this in depth, but essentially it means that I don't have to pretend to plan out my life in advance, which is what I was doing with the old timetable. Now it's just every day I think, I, 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 think, I think to myself, if the exam was tomorrow, what topic would I be most unhappy about? Uh, and I kind of pick my topic from that list of topics and then I kind of study it. And by studying it, I mean test myself on the questions that I've already written. So the thing is those two things like testing and spacing that are the, the two main uh, sort of the two main components of evidence-based uh, studying. Just to pick up on that point, Ali, the sort of benefit with spacing is it's allowing a little bit of forgetting to occur so that when you do then come back to a, a, a retrieval activity, it becomes really effortful. And I think when you, when you look at the, the evidence behind knowing what, they are, what the effective strategies are and what the less effective strategies are, it's often the more effortful ones, the more difficult ones that, that pay greatest dividends. What would your advice be to, to students who, because of the nature of that difficulty, it, it increases the chances of you giving up and thinking that it's not, not going to be effective? What would you say to kind of students that are kind of thinking, oh, I really don't think this is going to work for me, yeah. it's just too hard? So that's, an, that's something that I used to struggle with as well, because I guess intuitively we think that learning should be easy. 
And we look at our friends and be like, oh, you know, mm. they just read it once and now they can memorize it and they can regurgitate the facts and the supervisions and stuff. Um, and so when we struggle with stuff ourselves, we think I must be, I must be stupid to not get this. Like clearly I'm doing something wrong, but it's sort of like, like the example that I use in my head is if you're, if you're going to the gym and you're lifting weights that you can just easily lift, you're not actually going to do anything because the, the tension and the difficulty is what is, what is the stimulus for muscle growth and hypertrophy. And equally with the brain, like it's, it's not an exact, it's, it's not a perfect metaphor because, you know, the brain is muscle, like there's all sorts of issues with that, but essentially it is kind of like a muscle in that the more you stretch it and the more you stress it out, the more it's going to want to form the connections between things. And so if you like go, for, if you like going for a stroll in the park, like it's better than nothing, but it's not really going to improve your aerobic uh, cardiovascular fitness. But if you're kind of running a marathon, then it really is. And so studying is more like sort of putting effort into try and build those connections and doing stuff that is not effortful in my opinion, is a total waste of time because it would be like going to the gym and lifting weights that are just way, way too light for you. Whereas if you go to the gym and lift weights that are a bit heavier, A, you spend less time in the gym because the stuff is harder, but B, you're actually getting muscle growth and it's the same with studying. Uh, We're all moving into third year. So we're moving into the the clinical phase of our medical degree. Um, We've had loads of questions about this through our Instagram too. Basically, it would be, what would your advice be on study strategies and approaches to get the most out of um, the clinical environment? Hmm. So honestly, what I'd say is firstly, get advice from people who've kind of in, in, in the years above, because every university has a different kind of approach to essentially how much they want you to go into hospital. Uh, at Cambridge, they were fairly lax about the whole thing. And sort of for the first few weeks, everyone thinks they have to go in every day. And then very quickly, every single person realizes, hang on, this is not like, you know, if I care about learning effectively, going in every day and just hanging around hoping to learn by osmosis is not at all an effective way to learn. Um, and so the method that eventually a lot of people get to, which I, which I got to kind of at, at like halfway through my first clinical year, is that you want to really have an aim when you're going in. Like, let's say you're, you're on the cardiology ward and you've done a, you've scoped your subject, which is another thing that I'm very big on, where you basically just kind of write, write down a list of all the topics within cardiology. And then you look at, oh, actually, this is actually fairly manageable. There's like 20, to, 20 topics in, in cardiology. Five of them are important and 15, 15 of them are like small print. Um, okay. So then you think, okay, which of these 20 topics do I need to learn about? And then you think, okay, what are the sort of clinical signs that you can get in cardiology? Like murmurs is the first thing that comes to mind, jugular venous pressure. There's like a few different clinical signs that you want to be able to identify. But if you were on a cardiology placement and you just generally hang around for like six weeks, you actually probably won't learn that much because a lot of it is very repetitive. A lot of it is patients got fluid overload. Let's increase their furosemide. Like it's a sort of A leads to B leads to C type approach. Whereas if you approach it from like, okay, I'm only going to go in for two hours in the morning. I'm going to go in, I'm going to go with a friend. Our specific goal is that we're going to try and hear a diastolic murmur. And once we've done that, we're going to do a full 10 minute OSCE examination on the patient. We're going to mark ourselves and then we're going to leave and do something more interesting. That would be the approach that I would personally take. And that being all of my friends realized we should have taken earlier on. Whereas at the start we were like, Oh, you know, I'm a clinical medic now. I should go into the hospital every day and actively feeling guilty when you don't. So I think clinicals is a lot more about taking your learning into your own hands. This is all with a caveat that at Cambridge, we didn't have sign-ins and no one really cared whether we were in a hospital or not. Um, I don't know what it's like at other medical schools. Maybe they have more of a, <laughs> more of a sort of a rigorous approach to keeping you in hospital. Yeah. There's definitely parallels to, to preclinical medicine where you've got to take a, take charge of what you're doing, you know, taking responsibility for your own learning, know what you want to get out of your day. So yeah, I think that's a, a great piece of advice. You, you, you spoke really nicely about um, having these aims, having these objectives, 
about what you want to achieve and what you want to get out of a particular placement like the cardiology one that you referenced to so like I know you said instead of, sort of just generally hanging around so what advice would you give to sort of students who are a little bit shyer or a little bit less confident about what they can do in a clinical setting are they allowed to kind of say I'm a, I'm a third year or fourth year medical student this is what I want to try and do I want to try and achieve it because I think even for me I'm, a, I'm perhaps a bit older I've worked a little bit as well but I do have this sense of anxiety going into wards with consultants and physiotherapists and etc and I'm just thinking am I allowed to say this is what I want to try and achieve and then just try and go sort of go for it or do you because I think that's what leads to students sort of hanging around nervously mm, definitely uh, I think one tip that I would say very early on is just like make friends with the junior doctors on the ward um, and I think that's that's something I, I realized fairly early on in, in the clinical years that actually the, the F1s and F2s they want to be my friend when I'm a fourth year medical <laughs> student and they want me to have a good time on the placement and they want to go out of the way to help me. And therefore I can kind of banter with them and, you know, go out for coffee with them and have a chat and be like, look, man, I've got to find a diastolic moment. Who do you recommend? And, and <laughs> stuff like that. And, and the sooner you get to that level of um, familiarity with the juniors on the ward, the more fun every single placement becomes. And now kind of having been in that position, you know, as an, as an F1 or an F2, I want to be friends with the, with the clinical medical students, but yeah. I feel a little bit weird about like extending the hand of friendship because in my head, it's like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm thinking, I don't know how keen they are. I don't know if they're actually just yeah. here because they want to kind of spend an hour here and go home. I don't know if they're like stressed out about something or, or another. Like, I, I, I don't know if I give them something to do, will they feel hard done by that? I'm going, I'm giving them stuff to do or will they think, oh, I'm glad that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling involved. And so there's that, a little, a little bit of that sort of, it's kind of like, it's going to sound like a weird example, but it's kind of like if you like someone and you don't know if they like you back and like yeah. the other person probably might like you, but they don't know if you like them back. And it's, it's, it's like this weird sort of social game that you're playing. We're trying to figure out what are the other person's intentions. And it takes one person to like make the first step and sort of initiate, be like, hi, my name is whatever, you know, what's going on. And it, just sort of to take the relationship a, little, a step beyond just a pure stuffy professional relationship and into a more casual, let's just be friends kind of vibe. And so when it comes to anxiety, like I fully get the anxiety about you don't want to go up to your 55 year old white dude consultant and be like, hey, bro, find me a diastolic murmur. But you can absolutely <laughs> do that to the juniors and to the registrars and be like, hey, bro, find me a murmur. And they would appreciate that level of casualness for the most part. So I think, yeah, just to try and be friends with the juniors would be my advice. And then life just becomes so much more interesting. Um, move away from the more clinical side. But maybe have a look a bit of medical school as a whole, because we know that I'm pretty sure all medical students have peaks and troughs throughout medical school. And there might be times where you personally might have struggled a bit more or feel like you're failing or even burning out. So what we were wondering was, did you have any points at medical school where you felt like this? I don't think I ever, I, I, I don't think I ever had any points of feeling, feeling like I was failing. I think this is something that me and, and my friends, we, we, we talk about a lot. And, and like, it seems like there are two, two-ish approaches to how you, how you approach exam, exams. Yeah. Um, there are some friends of mine who will approach exams with the intention of not failing. And like, for example, my housemate Molly talks about this quite a lot. Like she like does absolutely incredibly in her exams, but she will be internally and fundamentally convinced that she's not intelligent and that she's going to fail. And therefore, she's going to have like 18 breakdowns before the exams. And the, the reason she's studying is because she's absolutely terrified of failure. 
and is terrified of the possibility that she's going to fail. And then she comes out with a, with a distinction at the end of the day and she's like, oh, okay, that was interesting. And then, so that's kind of one category of, 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 of people that I, I know. The other category is sort of more that me and some of my other friends fall into, which is that you sort of have a more accurate, uh, a, a more accurate compass of how I think I'm doing internally relative to what sort of marks I'm getting in my exams. Mm -hmm. And if that is calibrated in the right way, and I think, okay, I'm pretty sure I can comfortably get at least a 2-1, and I'm pretty sure I don't need to worry about failing. At that point, all the anxiety goes away because really all that matters is passing. And then it becomes a case of, okay, let's play the game and try and get a first. Uh, and so it's just like two very different approaches of it. But one of yeah, them leads yeah. to having 18 breakdowns before, you know, the week before exams. And the other approach leads to treating exams kind of as a game. And so because thankfully just by default, by personality and whatever, I happen to be in the latter camp of treating it like a game. I never really got stressed out by exams in any kind of sense like that. I think that the, the, there was one time early in first year where like I thought I'd fallen in love for the first time, but then she ended up like leaving the university for various oh. reasons. And I was like heartbroken and stuff. And then <laughs> that was hard, but that was hard in a different way. It wasn't like medicine that was stressful. It was the fact that I was like a hormonal, hormonal teenager that was particularly stressful. So obviously with exams, you feel like that you haven't been in that trap of I'm going to fail or whatever, which is fine because I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. But let's like maybe put it into a situation. So you mentioned maybe taking bloods or putting in a cannula. So if you found that maybe with a patient, you weren't able to retrieve that sample of blood or weren't able to find that murmur, how did you go about dealing with that? So especially for people in like their clinical years as well. I, I guess you guys will have come across uh, Carol Dweck's idea of the growth mindset compared to the fixed mindset. The fixed yeah. mindset me meaning sort of my abilities are fixed and any sort of criticism or any failure is uh, sort of an, an absolutely devastating thing. Whereas a growth mindset is more like, I know my abilities can change and I can grow as a person and my skills can improve. Therefore, any failure is a learning opportunity and I'm glad I've failed because now I get the opportunity to learn. And so like, I think the sooner everyone adopts a growth mindset, the happier just life will be in general because then yeah. like even now, if I fail at a cannula, I'm like, oh, well, that's fine. I'll just try yeah. again or get the anesthetist to come along and show me how to do it and I'll learn for next time. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just one of those things that like once you develop that mindset, almost nothing can phase you when it comes to fear of failure because you just know that it's all a learning opportunity. Yeah, that, that's really great advice. So I think we've gone through most of your med school journey and talking about study strategies and then moving into clinical phases. So I think we'd like a quick fire round on things, some medicine topics and some non-medicine topics. Some of these have been sent in on Instagram. So um, I'll get started. So the first one is coffee or tea? Ooh, uh, coffee. <laughs> Book or podcast? Um, audiobook. 2.5 times speed or 1.5 times speed? Uh, if I could only choose one, 2.5. What would your optimum replay speed be? It depends on the podcast or audiobook, but usually at least 2x. If it's a very, very dense topic, then 1.5 or occasionally even one if I really have to, if I'm really struggling to keep up. Um, but usually around about 2x. Cardio or weights? Uh, weights, definitely. Uh, that, that'll go a good way to get your Gymshark um, sponsorship that you yeah, normally talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Scrubs or pajamas? Scrubs. Night owl or is early riser? Um, early riser in an ideal world, night owl realistically. <laughs> Favorite organ of the body? The heart, because that's where mm -hmm. love comes from, doesn't it? <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> yeah. um, favorite Netflix series? I'm trying to think of how many Netflix series I've seen. 
I watched Money Heist the other day. That's I think that's the only Netflix series I've seen. That's really good. And, and that's good. TV series will do. Oh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Choice. And um, what is your go-to meal when studying? Oh, five guys. <laughs> so kind of moving on to the here and now, you finished your foundation training and you recently decided to take a bit of a step back from medicine temporarily. But looking back to when you first graduated, what aspect of working as a junior doctor would you say you felt least prepared for by medical school? Um, okay, so there's two things I would say. The first one would be just like the logistics of it all because so much of being a good F1 is about understanding like how the blood taking system works and understanding who you have to call to request a scan and who the nice radiologists are, the ones that you can, you know, sneak a scan by and they won't really care versus who the mean radiologists are, who you have to sort of really, really convince them. And, you know, all these like logistical things that are so hospital dependent and you just don't get prepared for in med school. That's like a big part of being an effective F1. The other thing that um, I felt less prepared for was managing unwell patients um and it was one of the like i think that's the thing that everyone is always always hesitant about um and sooner or later you get thrust into a situation where you feel out, out of your depth and i think yeah I, I i sort of wish i'd had more practice of that like i really enjoyed all, all our simulation training that we did in med school but even then i th i think probably it would have been nice to be more familiar with who do you call for help as like the main thing, because, you know, by the time you graduate as a doctor, you can all do like an ABCD assessment. You can recognize an unwell patient, but the, who do you call for help is like a really interesting one because like the question that goes through your mind is at what point you call for help? At what point is it sort of where I should have done stuff by myself before calling for help? Do I call my own registrar? Do I call the medical registrar? Do I call the medical consultant? Like, the hierarchy of how a hospital works and who is actually responsible for the patients. is something that I just did not appreciate until I was actually a doctor. Maybe I'd have had, had I'd have appreciated more it, it, it more if I'd been in hospital more. But then I did like loads of night shifts and stuff on call, and I just never really understood like what is the role of the medical registrar in, in in the whole hospital? Like what do they do? Who do I call for help? So it's kind of kind of those things like that. And I think that would be one thing that I'd I now always advise people that look, you know m managing unwell patients is the only thing that actually you need to be acutely concerned about. Everything else, you've got time and therefore you can always ask for help. But in the, in, you know, in extremists, you want to know who you can call for help immediately. And that would be the main thing. Like just the conversations naturally kind of fell this way. And I was watching some of your YouTube videos, Ali. You talked just recently just about like priorities of life and how those priorities kind of channel how much time somebody would spend studying and how much time they'd spend doing other things. Yeah. So from your kind of personal experience or just your insights, um, medical students in general like we're going on this journey where our thoughts and our priorities will evolve um, perhaps away from sort of exam related exam graded uh, priorities to more kind of holistic uh, features of life in general which go beyond medicine and hospital and, and, and things and I think that's part of the reason you know this happens because we're in such a long degree process and so much is changing in someone's late teens and early 20s and into their 30s as well with medicine so i just wondered if you'd like to share kind of your thoughts or your experiences of how your priorities if they have or haven't shifted um, and how that might be you know useful for other medical students who are going through a similar journey a few a few different people who talk about this stuff online and i'm kind of citing mostly from them so with a caveat that i i, I don't really have any original thoughts i just cite from other people but there's one school of thought that says 
you know, there's like four important things in life, and that is your physical health, your mental health and well-being, your um, your career defined as the thing you have to do to make ends meet, i.e. to live and have a roof over your head, and then relationships. And those are the only four important things. So essentially money, physical health, happiness, and relationships. Um, and for the most part, for a lot of medics, we'll have the career... We'll, we'll have the career thing pretty sorted. Like it's pretty hard to be uh, sort of, it's, it's pretty hard to struggle to make ends meet, provided you're living within your means if you're a medic, because you just automatically have a job forever, which is just kind of nice. So then the other things to, that we need to think about are physical health, mental health and well-being, and happiness and stuff and relationships as those, those three things. I think a lot of the time we don't put the intentionality into those as we probably should. So like at university, it's easy, right? Because you're hanging out with all your friends and you all live together. So it's very easy to do the relationships thing. But as you get older, as your friends scatter off into different parts of the country for F1 and F2, it becomes really hard to keep in touch with people. And so you have to put a lot more intentionality into it than you do when you're at university where just by default, you knock on a friend's door and, and, and they come over. And so, you know, one thing that I do is I literally have a database of friends that I want to keep in touch with. And like, you know, I'll go through the list and be like, when was the last time I chatted to them? If it was less than three, if, if it was like more than three months ago, I will send them a message or ring them up or something like that. We also have a thing where me and some of my other medic friends, every, every placement, so every four months, uh, we would arrange like a holiday to go out together to, you know, we're going to Brighton next weekend. We've been in the past, we've been to Germany, we went to kind of Lake District. We've been to different areas and we have to organize those things like three months in advance. Like you send out a doodle poll, figure out when everyone's free, figure out who can get annual leave, who can swap things out just to make time for that relationships thing. When you start working and stuff, it can be very easy to let the physical health thing slide by because there's always something more interesting to be doing. That's kind of like one set of priorities, kind of these four areas. Yeah. The other priority thing that I, that sort of really applied to me was that I recognized that I probably don't want to be a doctor full time. And I had that realization because uh, essentially from, from first year onwards, anytime I'd meet a doctor and kind of get on with them, I would ask the question that if you won the lottery, would you still continue to do medicine for fun? And about half the people in my eight years of asking this question, half of the people have said, I would leave immediately and do something else. The other half of the people have said, I would continue doing medicine because it's fun, but I would do it part-time. And so the next question becomes, okay, well, why don't you switch to part-time? And the answer is always to do with money. It's always that, well, I've got a mortgage, I've got kids, I've got blah, blah, blah. You know, I need the full-time salary to make ends meet, you know, to sustain the lifestyle. And so I recognized this fairly early on and I knew that for me, therefore, chances are I'm not going to be that tiny, tiny minority of person who actually enjoys their job full time. Chances are I'm going to be one of the people that would probably enjoy medicine for fun part time, but just not, not as a full time job. And so I recognized that in an ideal world, what I need to do is become financially free, financially independent outside of the context of my day job. Because if I could make money through like the Internet or through other means, that sustained my lifestyle, then I'd be able to do medicine for fun rather than being shackled to a job that I might not necessarily enjoy doing full time. And so for the last like eight years, that's been sort of a, a thing in my mind that, okay, how do I build up these sources of passive income so I can make money without it being directly coupled to my time? And I think that's been one of the sort of probably the single most important thing that I've done for myself to give myself the freedom to then not have to do medicine if I don't want to. And I gather not that not everyone cares about like entrepreneurship and starting a business and making a YouTube channel and all this sort of stuff. But for the right sort of person, this um, sort of idea that it's possible to actually become financially independent 
in a way that you don't actually have to work full time if you don't want to. That's like a game changing insight. Um, so that's another thing that I would, I would kind of have in the back of my mind. Like, you know, obviously money isn't everything, but if you can sort the money thing out without having to do medicine, suddenly your life changes because now you're doing medicine for fun rather than because you have to, because it's a job. Um, and there's all sorts of resources online about how to get to a point where you can build a business or make a YouTube channel or whatever that sustains your lifestyle without you having to work for it. There's this goal, isn't there? There's this cliche that, you know, you should, your job should be your passion. And, you know, once you found that you've got the perfect life. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with medicine, there's a lot of people who, who love medicine and they find the job of medicine and they, they do it and it's, it's great. But uh, like you said, I think it's a bit, it's not completely inclusive to say that one thing can provide the fulfillment that the, you know, the rich experiences of life gives. And because medicine is so heavy in terms of how much work there is and how how long the hours are in training, then it can actually push away those other aspects of life, which are seen in medical students and doctors later on as well. So, you know, that's really helpful to, to hear that from somebody who's actively been through that process. I think uh, just to follow up quickly on that, if we have time, um, you know, Ali, did you, did you sort of go through this whole thought process over a long period of time or did you instantaneously switch over to make this decision? Because mentally, I mean, to leave something behind temporarily, at least that must affect you in some way, or was it quite simple to switch over? Um, yeah. So it was when I was like 18, just as I was going into first year, that I discovered a book called the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Before that, I'd never heard this phrase passive income before. I, d- I didn't know it was possible to get to a point where you can, li- you can make money while you sleep essentially, which it sounds like really scammy. Um, and so kind of from there, as I was going through med school, I knew that this was the sort of the, the place where I wanted to end up, where I had these kind of multiple sources of passive income. And so it was sort of, um, like, it, I, I think it was that instantaneous switch of reading that book and realizing that this was a possibility for me to change my goals such that, okay, let's get to this point. But then obviously getting to that point is like a really slow, drawn out, really fun process to, to go through. Um, and like now, for example, I'm at that point where my side income is, can fund my lifestyle. And so I've, got, I've, I've now got the option of saying, okay, I want to take a year out of medicine, which lots of my friends are doing. Um, but now I can just kind of travel the world for a few months, you know, lockdown permitting or just go to Australia to do emergency medicine for a bit, or I don't know, go to Cambodia, or like kind of do whatever, because the money thing is now pretty much sorted. And so like, it's a, it was like a quick decision initially, but then like a really slow process over the last eight years of getting to this point. Yeah. Definitely. That's really insightful. And I think a lot of us, at least I am going to probably think about these things towards the end of, of med school for sure. But, uh, why towards the end of med school? Why not from med school? <laughs> oh God. Why defer, That's true, yeah. Cause, cause there's years. too much going on in life right now, Ali, <laughs> to think about all of this at this point. Fair enough. To so... defer all of happiness. <laughs> I guarantee you're going to be more busy as a doctor than you are as a medical student. You have gallons of free yeah. time as a medical student. Yeah. I think we all have to adopt true. Ali's advice, to be honest, guys. We've got a like change our mindset instant, instantly now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, we're not going to be enjoying things. Incorporate more <laughs> of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Nikita, you're going to have to be changed up. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I will see. I will see. Um, but I think the yes. nice thing is it's so individual with every person. So like for some people, True. it might just be that, you know, medicine all day, every day is what I want to do in life. And I love that. But there's, there's the likelihood is that there's other things in life, isn't there, that are valuable and we can't lose sight of that. Uh, in medical school or beyond. Uh, can't be restrained. Mm-hmm. It will do things like Ali's doing to to prevent 
being trapped by like financial things or other things mm. yeah yeah for sure i think i'll think about it because i mean at this point i remember in our previous episodes i said how uh, um i couldn't do things in first year second year and now i'm like i should have done more of my life so i'll think about it i'll think about it um <laughs> so <laughs> coming to the final part of the show uh, it's our recommendations so we have two recommendations this week the first one's coming from you ali so do you want to do you want to go ahead uh sure so a book that everyone should read is called The Third Door by a dude called Alex Banian. It's amazing. It made me cry so many times. It's absolutely oh incredible. Could you tell uh, us a little bit more about that quickly? Or? Yeah. So the, the spiel of The Third Door is like, it's, it's essentially this dude who was like, you know, like 21 and at university. So probably the age that most of you are, are similar to. And like, he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. Because he was like, well, I'm not really passionate about kind of going into the corporate world, et cetera, et cetera. So he set out on an adventure to try and interview the world's most successful people and figure out what they did when they were like sort of in their early 20s to get to that point. Mm. Um, and what starts off as this, you know, attempt for him to get life advice turns into this like amazing sort of adventure narrative story of how he stepped, out, stepped outside of his comfort zone and how he, essentially how he got to the point where he interviewed like Bill Gates and Lady Gaga and like, you know, famous people and stuff. But just like the story of getting there is just so interesting. And the book is called The Third Door because the analogy that he comes up with, which I think is great, is that um, life is like a nightclub in that there are always three doors. There's the first door, which is where people are queuing up for 18 blocks to try and get in. There's the second door, which is for the billionaires and the celebrities who know the bouncers and can just kind of get in through the second door. But what no one tells you is that in life, there is always the third door. And the third door is when you kind of go down the alleyway, you see the window slightly open, you open it a bit, you go in through, you go through the kitchens, you make friends with the wait staff, you get in to the nightclub through the third door. And what this guy's found out, like through all the successful people that he's interviewed, whether it was Bill Gates landing his first software deal or like Steven Spielberg becoming the youngest director in Hollywood, they all took the third door. And I think this is so hugely useful for medics specifically because we are very much first door thinkers. We think I want to apply for my specialist training number in plastic surgery and therefore I need to maximize my application so that I'm more competitive than the other 5,000 people who want to apply for that same thing. We are trying to queue up in the first door and we're hoping that someone will, will pick us out of the pot of 5,000 people because we had like one extra publication or because we got 1% extra in our med school exams. Um, and I think just the mindset shift of think, thinking more in terms of the third door, like are there things that I could do that would actually get me into this thing that I want to do potentially that don't require lining up for 18 blocks with everyone else and hoping to be the one who gets picked? So I think that's a really powerful book and it's a very riveting story and I finished it in one sitting and it made me cry and stuff. So it's would recommend. Wow. That sounds really good. I think it's true as medics were heavily conditioned, conditioned to one path. So having that third door is, is, is really good. Yeah. Um, so the second recommendation of course is Ali's YouTube channel. And that contains a whole range of videos about optimizing studying and developing optimal learning strategies. So we'll link both of these recommendations in the show notes. So that's all for this week. A huge, huge thank you, Ali, for joining us and sharing so many helpful insights. I've picked up so much personally. I'm sure the rest of us have as well yeah, that definitely. we'll keep in mind for the future. No, just like, thanks for having me. This has been fun. And <laughs> yeah, just uh, think about what game you're playing and whether that's really the game you want to be playing. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a review and give us a follow on Instagram at the Hippocampus Podcast. 
And if you've got any thoughts on this episode or ideas for future discussion, please send us an email at thehippocampuspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode.